Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. As I mentioned earlier, we're in the midst of a series of messages asking the Lord to help us in our unbelief. That there are those moments in our lives, we talked about last week, when the circumstances of life are difficult, financially or physically, emotionally, spiritually, that there are those moments when in the midst of that, that we might have some doubts. Perhaps intellectually we're challenged by something that we read or that we hear or that we're taught. Perhaps emotionally we're challenged because it just doesn't feel right at the moment. Uh, Perhaps we're challenged when the circumstances of our life means that it doesn't seem like life is working out like we would like for it to. That in the midst of all of that, it's easy to begin to wonder if it's worth it, if it's there. And I'll just be real honest with you. One of the things that I think is remarkable about the Bible is that multiple times in many places it deals with the issue of doubt and it never condemns doubt outright. In fact, what it often says is that it's natural as a part of our sinful, broken world that we would have some doubts and yet we must be refocused continually to where we are. Like I said, John the Baptist last week sent out a message in prison awaiting his death and said, I just want to make sure Jesus is who he said he is. The book of Hebrews that we're not going to touch on in this particular series is a book written to people who were asking the question, is Christianity worth it or should we turn back to where we were? This morning what I want us to do is we're going to look at one of the most difficult passages of Scripture. In fact, as I was reading commentaries and looking through things, that oftentimes you'll find commentaries or you'll find places that'll break apart parts of Scripture into preaching segments. You can see, okay, that'd be good. First of all, they would never recommend to preach this full text, but it also, a lot of them just skipped it completely. Because it's a difficult passage and it's hard to kind of get our minds around what's happening here. And at the same time, There is an answer in this passage that is one of my all-time favorite quotes from Scripture. John chapter 6. We're going to start all the way down in verse 53. It's a rather lengthy chapter. But we're going to start at a place where you need to know the context of what's gone before. And so at the beginning of... The sixth chapter of John is this little event where Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. You know the story, right? So Jesus goes out. They're out there. They've been teaching all day. Jesus has been teaching. Most people think it's probably mid-afternoon. These people were not expecting to fast all day, but here they were. There were not McDonald's and food courts around for them. They didn't bring their food. They didn't have food. And so they are hungry. And the disciples say, Jesus, you, you've got to do something. These people are starving. And at some point, I don't need anybody to amen this next point, okay? At some point, stomachs become empty enough that the ears no longer can hear. Right? I, I said nobody need to amen that, all right? So we like every Sunday we understand that, right? 
And so at some point, Jesus is going to be counterproductive. These people need to eat. And so, you know, the discussion and somebody says, hey, we could just go make like eight months of salary and that would pay for one meal. And somebody says, just send them home. Just get them out of here. And then there's the boy with some loaves and fishes and Jesus multiplies it and they're all fit. The book of, by the way, the book of John is divided into two really parts. And the first part is called the book of signs or the book of miracles. And that is a major one. Now, Jesus, at the end of that day, says to all the people, hey, I'll stay here for a little bit. But he tells his disciples, y'all need to get out of here. So he puts them in a boat and says, go across the lake. And when he gives across the lake, I'll meet you over there. Now, none of them bothered to ask, how are you going to get there? How are you going to find us? What's going to happen? They just, okay, Jesus does what he says he does. And so Jesus stays with the people a little longer. He retreats for a little bit by himself. And then he finds the disciples. Now, where does he find the disciples? In a boat, walking on the water. And so you've got two signs back to back, right? You've got the sign that proves to the people, this is the Messiah we want. This is the one we want because he's feeding us. And then you've got the sign for the apostles in the boat that he has power to walk on water. There is no one like him. And they get to the other side. And the people find out that Jesus is there. And it says in almost a bewildering way, how did he get here? They find their way around and they come to him and say, it's time for more. Now, what's interesting is the way that Jesus describes and talks and what he describes to them is he understands that what they're really saying is we're here for more food. If you give us some of that spiritual kind, that's great. But we really like the real food. And towards the end of it, Jesus begins to turn his discussion for them. And he begins to talk about the bread of life and food that will never go away. And you come to chapter 6, verse 53, and Jesus is going to ramp up the severity and the difficulty of his teaching. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, I need you to turn off your 20th, or I guess it's 21st century, right? 21st century, it has been for like 21 years now, 21st century mind, when you hear that and you automatically think of the Last Supper. The Lord's Supper. You have to remember, this is before that. This is before the crucifixion. This is before Jesus equated his death on the cross with the Last Supper meal. He's just telling these people, unless you physically eat of my body and drink of my blood, you cannot have a place in the kingdom of God. At least that's what they hear. He goes on to say this. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. And so Jesus, sensing that this crowd is here because of who he is, wants them to understand what it means to follow him. 
Now, one of the things I think is very interesting about this particular passage of Scripture is that it mirrors in so many ways the way so many people feel about Jesus in our own society, in our own day. Because the people that are gathered around and listening to this message from Jesus are thinking to themselves, this is the man that could feed us. He could feed us with nothing and develop everything. This is who we need. Everybody's going to have all the food they want. He will fill up our physical desires, what our needs are, what our wants are, that he is the one that is going to give us the prosperity that we want. And yet Jesus is teaching here, That to understand what it means to follow me is to understand there is much deeper need in our lives than the food that we eat. And that to follow me means to come in contact with that, but also it means being willing to give up in order to be truly fulfilled. And so what you have here is the people begin to have their expectations of who Jesus is changed. Remember last week we talked about with John the Baptist that one of the things that can often change our understanding and bring doubt into our minds are when unmet expectations happen. We talked about it in the sense of marriage, that when you talk to a couple standing here on the stage, on their wedding day, that stars in their eyes, hearts in their eyes, everything's going to be great, everything's going to be awesome. There's this... uh, as part of what I do in preparing couples for marriage, there's an online assessment they do, and then you look at it, and it's always interesting. There's a question on there that says this. Everything I have discovered about my partner has been positive. And the number of pre-engaged-to-be-married you know, couples who mark absolutely on that is almost completely opposite of the number of married couples who mark absolutely on that, right? Like, because you give, you can give this assessment for both. Like, I have people that are getting ready to get married and people that have been married and we're talking through it. And married couples, I mean, just, you don't have to say this out loud because some of you have your spouses next to you. But just think about that. In your years of marriage, every single thing you've discovered about your spouse has been a positive experience. All right. I won't make you answer it. Some of you are elbowing each other. That's all right, too. Right? Because expectations are often too high or incorrect. The people's expectations of Jesus was an earthly king who was going to take care of them and feed them. And Jesus had a much different understanding. And so he throws this out there. That they are going to be people that eat and drink of his flesh and of his blood. Verse 60 is just an interesting passage because it says, chapter 6, verse 60 says, Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, now, by the way, this is not just the crowd. There would have been 5,000 plus there, but even some of the ones that have been walking with him, not the apostles, he'll come to them in just a moment, not the inner circle of the inner circle, but these are people that are committed to him. They hear this, they said, this teaching is hard, who can accept it? Now, we would expect in our day and time that the 
teacher who doesn't want to lose anybody and say, no, 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 you, you're misunderstanding. What I meant to say, let me apologize if I offended anybody. Let me, let me tell you what I meant to say here. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, what Jesus does is he makes it even more difficult. And we won't read this part, but he starts to claim that he is on level with God and that the Spirit himself has sent him and that God has ordained him in this moment, which we know on this side of the cross and the resurrection is true. But to people that are sitting there like, wait a minute, that's a little much. Not only are you claiming to be someone that we have to eat of their flesh and drink of their blood, but now you're claiming to be equal to and on par with God. And so in verse 66, it says this. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So it's this moment. Some people, sometimes people ask, well, what happened with the huge crowds that were around him? Well, this is a turning point in the book of John. When the crowds have been building and building and building and building. Now, there will still be crowds. There will still be people. But when you get to the fact that he is teaching probably around 10,000 people and feeds all of them. And you get to this point when it says many, you're talking thousands abandoned him. Because of unmet expectations and misplaced priorities. And because they thought he was supposed to do something different than he did. And then you have this poignant question pointed directly at his apostles. Verse 67 says, So Jesus said to the twelve, his inner circle, inner circle, You don't want to go away too, do you? This is the moment of decision for these twelve. He basically says, If it's too hard for you, Now's the time to get out. Do you also want to leave? Now, I know we're in church and we're at a place where everybody talks about how blessed they are and how great it is and how good God is. And he is. And we are. But we also realize that there are significant moments in our lives when we must make a decision like Joshua gave to the people of Israel and says, choose this day whom you will serve. This is the Joshua moment for the twelve. Many of them have left their lives. They have followed him. They have walked down this path. And for them as well, they're thinking, this guy's the Messiah, the future king of Israel, and we're going to be his cabinet. And all of a sudden, they're looking around like, how do we square what we saw with the feeding and the miracle? Definitely God. What he saw walking on the water, definitely God with what he just said and did, that it's hard for us to understand. And in this moment, the first one to speak up is the one that normally speaks up in moments like this. Not always in the proper way. Peter has been said to have a foot-shaped mouth. Right? Maybe you know someone that has that. And Peter steps up in this moment and gives a beautiful Answer to that question. Verse 68 says, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You. Understanding from the original language, it's almost as if he says right there, you alone or you only have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One 
of God. Now, here's what I want to tell you about that answer that I love so much. When you dive deep into the languages, when you look at what's happening there, Peter basically says, listen, here's what I know. You have proven yourself in our past to be who you say you are. You are taking care of us in the present and you are the only one that holds the future. The tenses of the words and the verbs that are used in this passage in the original language basically say that God will take care of our past, present and future. Where else do we have to go? And here's the question that really it comes down to when we're in those moments of doubting, when we're in those moments of questioning, when they're in those moments of unmet expectations and what are we going to do and how do we keep going in those moments? Where else are you going to turn? Because Jesus is the one who holds our past, our present and our future. So as the time we have left today, I want to do this. I just want to talk for just a few minutes about exactly what that means for us today. And the first thing that I want us to understand is this, is the reason in our doubts that we can still follow Jesus is because only Jesus has freed us from our past. He says in here that we have come to believe and have come to know. That word in the original language is a word. Both of those words mean that there was a point in our past when we saw what you did that has ongoing effects into the present and will continue into eternity. And the idea behind this is simply that Jesus is the one that has provided for us our salvation by his death. We know. Now it's time to put our 21st century caps back on. We know when he says flesh and blood, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, that he is speaking metaphorically, that he is speaking symbolically about what was to come. And that we must understand and partake in him taking our place in our sin and suffering on the cross. Now, what's happening here is for his disciples, he's planting this seed. For us as believers, he's planting this seed. In fact, the book of John is written. If you want to know why John wrote his book, he tells us at the end that there were tons of other things that he could have written about Jesus, that he could fill the libraries of the world. But he only wrote what he wrote so that we may understand and believe. And what Jesus is doing is planting these seeds of when the time comes and I shed my blood, when the time comes and my body is broken, you will understand that I knew all along that my mission was to come. This is foreshadowing in a literary sense. It is prophecy in a biblical sense that he will give his flesh, that he will give his blood, that he will give his life for us. To reconcile us to him. The amazing thing about Jesus that we talk about all the time is it doesn't matter what we have done or how much we have done. He is ready and willing and able to forgive. Sometimes I talk to people and they're like, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. And they don't necessarily mean for some people it's a singular event or time period in their lives. It is the it is the quality of their sin, if you will, that they're worried about. How bad the sin that they did is. Pastor, you don't understand what I've done. And most of the times, I have to be honest, I don't. Unless they've shared intimate details of what it is that they've done in their past, I don't. But Jesus does. And he still went to the cross. 
Some people say it's not necessarily the quality, the bad is what I've done. It's how much I've done. Pastor, you don't know how long I've been doing this. It's the years that have been built up and that I can't feel like I can change, that nothing could be different. And the truth is, I don't know the fullness of that. But Jesus does. And he still went to the cross. Max Lucado talks about that night when he is in the garden and none of us know fully what is in his mind as he is preparing himself to go to the cross where he is sweating droplets of blood. None of us understand the agony of the separation that he was beginning to feel with the Father that would culminate in the cross because the sins of the world were being laid upon him. But... Max Lucado speculates, and it is just speculation, but it is informed speculation, that in that moment that God gave him a glimpse into the number of people throughout the history of the world, what was and is to come, that would be saved because of the act that he was about to do. And as he went to the cross that day, you and I were literally on his mind. We in sin have run from God. He has come to save us. This past Wednesday night, as we were walking through the entire Bible on Wednesday nights in our Bible study, we ended uh, up in the book of Ruth. And Ruth is one of those books, if you haven't read in a while, it's a great book. It's also a book that's hard to understand at times. But right in the center of Ruth is this concept from the Old Testament called a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer was somebody that was a part of your family, that if you got into debt or you could not pay the debt, the closest relative that had the means And the resolve could pay for your debt and pull you out of that. And in the book of Ruth, if you know the story, remember the story, there's Naomi who has two sons and a husband. And they move to Moab because there's a famine in the promised land. When they get to Moab, her husband dies. Her sons marry two women from Moab. And then her sons die. And she moves back with one of those, Ruth, and is there. And they have all this debt. They don't have any way to make a living for themselves. They don't have any way to really... Take care of who they are. And they meet a man named Boaz who steps in and takes the place of the kinsman redeemer. He marries Ruth. He rescues the family. He restores their fortunes and he gives them back their land. That picture is a type for us to understand of what a kinsman redeemer Jesus was. We had a debt that we could not pay on our own. And Jesus had the rights. He is family because he was born of a woman. He had the resources because he was perfect in everything he did and has power over sin and death. And he had the resolve because it tells us in Scripture he chose to do it. He took care of our past. Where else are we going to go? Secondly, not only does Jesus only Jesus take us from our past, only Jesus satisfies us in the present. Now I could pull out some statistics for you about people that are committed to Jesus, committed to church, committed to following the Lord. The fact is that science is proving now that people that are committed to the Lord and walking with him, that they are happier and healthier than people that are not. That the principles that Christianity teaches of forgiveness and service are actually good for you, help you to live a better life. Or that the centrality of love and our faith that should be lived out is good for us. But I want to speak specifically here, not about the external benefits we get from following Christ. I'm talking about Christ giving us the deepest 
need that we have met. You see, when God created humanity, he created us to be people that had desires, that craved things. When he placed Adam in the garden, he gave them trees. He gave Adam and Eve before sin came into the world. He told them that they could have and look upon and eat all but one. And the idea is that we find out even before sin came in, that there was needs in humanity for air and for water and for food and even for companionship, which is the reason Eve was created, that we were designed to have desires, but that those desires were to be met and fulfilled through our relationship with God. And that sin at its essence is us trying to fulfill a desire that God gave us apart from God. And as we choose to do things away from God, apart from God, to fulfill those things in our lives with things that are not of God, we walk away from him. Jesus, when he is in this long passage that we didn't read in chapter 6, I encourage you to go back and read that later today, the entire chapter. It's a fascinating chapter that goes from the highest of highs of feeding the 5,000 and walking on water to all of these people walking away. But in the midst of that, he starts to talk about them. And he says, listen, you're only here today because I fed your stomachs yesterday. And here's the thing. If I feed you today, you're going to need to be fed again tomorrow. And if I feed you tomorrow, you're going to need to be fed again. That's the thing about our human bodies. He said, but what I am here to do, what I have called to do, is to give you something that will nourish the deepest part of your life. He talks about living bread. Which is interesting because just a few chapters earlier, he had talked to the Samaritan woman about the living water. And his point is that there are things in our lives that you ought to desire and care for and go after that can only be met in God. Here's the truth. Most of us in this room, most of us that are living our lives, even declaring that we are following Jesus, most of us are living it half-heartedly pursuing half of what God wants when there is so much more that he desires for us. That he looks at us and thinks, your desires are too weak. Your wants are too little. You are asking me for things that will partially satisfy when there are opportunities to follow me that would satisfy you more completely. John Piper has said that he knows that in heaven there are times that God hears the prayers of his people and says, okay, But what you don't realize is there are 10,000 blessings that would be even more substantial to you waiting to go to you if you would just seek and ask of things that are more sustaining. Many of us in this room have built great lives. Have good houses and families and jobs and friends. Enjoy Events outside of our lives, extracurricular stuff, and we think that we have built everything we could ever imagine. And yet God, I think, looks at us and says, there's so much more waiting if you would simply do and follow and go after the things I've called you to. The lesson that he taught to these people, and many of them could not handle it, is you are wanting so much to be fed physically that you're missing on the opportunity to do something significant for the kingdom of God. Here's the last thing that we see in this answer from Peter. Not only does he have our past taken care of and our present is fulfilled, but lastly, he has secured our future. 
Simon answered, and this is the first part of his answer. He says, you have the words of eternal life. And the truth is, for those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, the answer to why would we go anywhere else is there's no sense in going anywhere else because Jesus is the one that has secured the future for us. Man, there are days and times and years and months when I am so anxious for Jesus to return. When I am so ready for Jesus to come again in power, to come as that roaring lion. Because I so look forward to those days when I will be reunited with the people in my life that I love and care about that have gone on before. When we will be able to see each other in complete abandon without any barriers, without any worries, without any sin between us. That we will be able to enjoy companionship and fellowship in a way that is unobscured by the sin in our lives. When we will have life as it was truly meant to be lived. And it will go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And that's only true because of Jesus and what he has done for us. When I think about this particular passage of scripture and I think about the choice that is given to the apostles Peter comes with a very strong answer. But this isn't going to be on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles open to chapter 6, it's also interesting how Jesus ends this passage. So Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? We have come to believe and I know that you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you? So he says, listen, that's awesome, Peter. I'm glad I chose you from the beginning. He says, yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. And what I find interesting about that particular moment there is normally when Peter actually gets it right, Jesus will commend him for getting it right and then say something about, oh, but don't, don't forget this. Here, he doesn't even say, great job, Peter. He just launches in, I'm the one that chose you, by the way. I'm glad you're going to stick with me. I'm the one that chose you. Great, but one of you is off the path already. And what it reminds me of is that even though Jesus has done all of these amazing things, he has died on the cross for us, he has stood in our place, he has secured our past, our present, and our future, it is still up to us to make a decision to follow him, to allow what he has done to be used in our lives. Now, God is the one, and it makes it very clear in this passage, God is the one that draws us, God is the one that gives us the ability to do that, but ultimately, at the heart level, all of us have to make a decision to follow Christ or not. And today, for you, that may mean for the very first time choosing to follow Christ. Where else are you going to turn in this crazy world? Maybe you're here and you've never accepted salvation in Jesus Christ. You've never followed him with your life. And this morning, you want to do that for the very first time. I can tell you in the words of Peter, there is no better alternative. Because there is no alternative that can take away your past can give you the power to live in this present, and can give you a future always with Him. Maybe you're here today, and you're in one of those moments when these apostles had already given their life to follow Christ, but they were also in one of those moments when some doubts and questions were there, and they 
had to make a decision whether or not to go full force, wholeheartedly for him. Maybe for you today, you're here, you're a believer, you follow the Lord, but today you need to say, I'm laying down some stuff and I'm going full force in the direction of following Christ. In just a moment, we're going to sing a classic hymn about deciding to follow Jesus. One of my favorite verses in there, parts of that is where it talks about no turning back. Like I'm making this decision and I'm not going anywhere. Even if nobody else goes with me, I'm going to follow. And my prayer is that that is the attitude and the direction of your heart this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that all across this room, that we'll have our own Joshua moment at this place, our own Peter moment. That when asked to choose to say whom we will serve, or asked if we want to turn away, that we will answer and say, where else do we have to go? Jesus, you hold the words of eternal life. We have seen and have known that you are the Holy One of God. Pray, Lord, that you will guide us as we live for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.